Hi, this is Zoe Routh, your host of the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast, where we talk about all things leadership and people stuff. I love to work with CEOs and teams on their people stuff in leadership. And sometimes that's really fun and sometimes it's really challenging. And I also love talking to amazing experts who love the same things I do. <laughs> and today's expert is Mike Goldman. He's a business coach, author, and speaker. And he's written two books on leadership. One is called The Performance Breakthrough. And his second one that uh, has come out this year in 2020 is Breakthrough Leadership Team. He's an interesting fella. He's from New Jersey, which I feel some affiliation to because that's where my sister and her family live. And I miss them so much. And he has a wonderful New Jersey accent, so it's really fun to listen to his conversation that way. Speaking of accents, if you're listening for the first time, I'm a Canadian-Australian. So occasionally my expressions come out a bit funny and I sound a bit funny, but that's sort of my little twisty accent going on. Back to Mike. Mike has worked for all of his professional career in corporate life, especially as a consultant and coach to leadership teams. He's worked with plenty of entrepreneurs to the Fortune 500 he has helped organizations like Verizon, Disney, Polo Ralph Lauren, Chanel, Liz Claire Bourne, and Levi Strauss. And he is also a master hypnotherapist. <laughs> so there's no hypnotizing in today's podcast recording. There is, however, lots of deep insight into what it takes to create a breakthrough leadership team. What are the key elements you need to structure your team? and what you must avoid doing so you don't have these big leadership regrets that many other leaders have had. Okay, let's do it. Mike, all the way from New Jersey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I, I'm Well, first of all, I'm excited to hear your lovely New Jersey accent because it reminds me of my sister who married a New Yorker, and I miss them very much. And I know you have so much interesting insights to share on what the heck is going on over there and what the heck is going on with leadership and teams. And uh, there's a lot to dive into. So let's start with, hey, you're a leadership expert. You've been working with teams forever. How did you actually get into that? Right out of college, actually, right out of undergraduate college. I actually, first half of my career, and I've been coaching and consulting a little over 30 years now. First half of my career was working with big management consulting firms, a company called Accenture, which I think is still the biggest management consulting firm in the world. Although back when I worked with them, they weren't called Accenture yet. It was even before that. Uh, but worked for Accenture, worked for a company called Deloitte and uh, did kind of the typical management consulting work and found that the travel was driving me crazy and driving my family crazy. I was never home and uh, took a shot halfway into my career and said, I'm gonna start my own business. And uh, actually had a little staffing and recruiting firm for about three years before I decided to jump back into consulting, uh, more, more coaching than consulting. And for the last 15 years or so, I've been working pretty exclusively with leadership teams of small and mid-sized companies to uh, help create great leadership teams that create great companies. 
Well, you were preaching to the choir because I love that work and I'm all on board with that. And I think it's amazing how you can go straight out of college into helping people on that level. So I'm imagining you as a, a, a young kid graduate and there was one of those big, massive firms and just soaking it all up and adding what you could to the consulting agency. And now here you are with two books, at least, under your belt. Is that right? Yes. Two yeah. books. Awesome. So in all this immersion in leadership and teams, how do you define leadership? For me, leadership is really about, uh, man, the weirdest thing that comes into my head is leadership is about leading, and that tells you nothing. But <laughs> leadership is, is, in my mind, and I think my, my attitude about it has changed over the years, leadership is really about understanding what's most important, either, either more, it's leading your own life, understanding what's most important to you, and, and having the courage to drive that way and do whatever it takes. And as a leader within a company, it's understanding how uh, what's important to that company kind of links in with what's important to you. And again, it's about having the courage to drive a company in a direction that is consistent with the company's purpose and your own purpose, and hopefully inspire a whole bunch of people inside the company and outside the company along the way to take part in that mission, whatever that mission is for you and that mission is for the company. Beautiful. So I love how you pick up on alignment there. So what's important to you, what's important to the company? And that's a values fit and a purpose fit. And I love how you talked also about courage. And that goes hand in glove with inspiration. I think people who act with courage are inspiring and inspire others. And I think what we've seen recently, so as we record this, we're at the three, four weeks into protests around the United States, actually around the globe on systemic racism in different contexts. And it's a tipping point. And I've read lots of literature and lots of speakers saying, that's it, game over. It's, it's time for something new. And I know that this is something that you're advocating as well, and that we can't sit silently by letting these things unfold. So tell me a little bit about that. You told me right before we hit record that you believe neutrality is dead. What do you mean by that? Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, that's been a real shift for me. And when I say a shift, I don't mean a shift over the last 10 years. I've gotten much smarter. No, it's like a shift over the last few months for me. And what I mean by neutrality is dead, and then I'll tell you about the shift, is that for most of my career, I've always thought that politics was kind of off the table. However you describe what politics is, you don't talk about that stuff. If I'm more left-wing in my politics and I've got a client that's more right-wing, well, I'm going to shut my mouth and I'm not going to say anything on social media that may cause me to lose a client because I feel one more or a prospect because I feel one way and they feel another. I always felt like that had no place. And I'll tell you, my daughter, who's 24 years old, came to stay with us for a couple of weeks. And all of the protests and the Black Lives Matter, you know, all of the things going on in the world hit her a lot harder than it hit me. I think it hits that. I'm 55 years old. It hits that younger generation much harder. I know when I, when I started working back in the late 80s, for me, what was important was I wanted to make partner in my firm, make a lot of money, buy a BMW, get a big house, 
You could beat me, whip me, kick me, work me 24 hours a day. I don't care. That's what I'm going to go do. And it's interesting because I've always thought that the, the folks in their 20s and 30s, that generation, they have a much healthier outlook on life. It's not about the status that was so important to me. I really felt like they cared about the world. And I thought that was important. They had a more holistic view on things. And then when my daughter stayed with us for a couple of weeks, as all this civil unrest and protest was happening, for a minute, I started to have a different point of view because she was so upset by it. And it really hit her so hard that I said, huh, maybe that's not so good. Maybe they're taking it too seriously. But I sat down and, and spent hours talking to my daughter about everything. And it was amazing that my 24-year-old daughter for the first time was educating me on things I never knew about some of the injustices going on and the inequality going on and the different opportunities. And it really got me feeling stronger about things. And I said, you know, 10 years from now or five years from now, I would much rather say I spoke out for what was important and I lost a client or I lost a prospect who cares? I'm doing okay. I've got a very solid business. I live a life that I never thought I'd live. Uh, I would much rather speak out for what I believe in and be proud of that than keep my mouth shut in the face of things that I just think are wrong. So, uh, I, just, so I want to check one thing though, because yeah. I think it's, it, I think it's very curious that it's your daughter educating you and the younger generation is more sensitive to that. In your reflection, what do you think is the contributing factor to that? I think the world they've grown up in. You know, I think, you know, if I look back to, you know, I started working in the late 80s and the 80s, at least in the U.S., were the hot Wall Street, everybody making money, buying BMWs, you know, all this stuff. And yeah, then we had a little market crash and then it was the dot-com you know, here we go making money. You know, my early years growing up were, were about trying to, trying to do better than the previous generation, seeing the opportunity out there. Um, and it really was, you know, it's, uh, I'm almost embarrassed by it now, but for me, it was about making as much money as I could and, and, and getting that status of the cars and the houses. And I think the folks today I was about to say kids, but they're they're young adults. They're not kids, but the folks in their 20s. Anybody and, under 30 is a kid. <laughs> yeah, I, I think anybody less than 50 is a kid these days. But but they grew up in a much different world. And they've grown up with so much change and not all that change being good, you know, from 9-11 to wars for many years to, you know, recession hitting and you know now to COVID-19 and, and all the, the, the racial violence going on and some of the real polarization that, that I never saw as a kid. You know, of course, I see what's in the U.S. It, it's so polarized that the, the political left can't even talk to the political right anymore. And they're both at fault for that. You know, they, they can't talk to each other. So I think, I think our, our kids in that generation have grown up in a much different world, social media, has meant they're exposed to a lot more. And I think their understanding, frankly, better than I ever did, what's really important. Where I think I had a much more selfish outlook that as long as I was doing fine, 
then the world was good. Why did I need to care so much about what else was out there? And I've certainly got uh, matured over the years. And, you know, I was out in Uganda a few years ago working with some entrepreneurs out there. It's not like I didn't care about the world. I've done a lot, but, but I think what's going on very recently for me has taken it to a whole other level. And I think the folks in their 20s and 30s were already there. I think you're right. I mean, we can't underestimate how impactful it is to have the internet. <laughs> and that's a significant contribution that only arose in, what, the 80s? You know, I didn't have email before 96. And these guys, you know, they're all over that sort of thing. And I think that interconnectivity allows us access to information and in situations we haven't seen before. Well, the other, the other thing I think it does, because that sounds very positive, And I think it's very positive, but it's also very negative. Because if you think about the information people are getting, they tend to hit the sites and be connected with the people who believe what they believe. That's absolutely true. It becomes more and more polarizing as the years go by. And that just seems to me like it's an explosion waiting to happen. Um, have you read Tim Urban's website, Wait But Why? No. Okay. I will send you the link and I'll post it in the show notes. He's an American. He's done this incredible series of essays on how it came to be. So in the United States in particular, the long history of us and how this how we got to this polarization. And one of the things that you just said is contributing to that. Search engines zoom in on what you pay attention to, and therefore you get this reinforcing loop. So the more you search on that, the more information you get about it. And you become, yeah, you become isolated in your own thought bubble, your own values bubble. And it does make it very difficult to be able to see perspective from somebody else's shoes. So given all that, how do you know that your point of view is worth sharing if we've all been indoctrinated by these self-reinforcing loops? How do you know what is right? It's a great question. I don't know that any of us know. I think we have our version of what's right, but I believe very strongly, what I believe is not always so easy to execute on, but I believe very strongly that everybody's just trying to do the right thing. I mean, that's one of my basic premises, and I learned it from, a, from another coach many years ago who taught the six laws of the universe. And frankly, I don't remember what they all were, but the first one is everybody's just doing the best they can. And by the way, I think the last one was like, everybody needs a coach. So it was like, <laughs> it was kind of self-serving. But that first, that first law of everybody's trying to do the best they can with the resources they have is really something I believe. So when I find that people don't believe what I believe, and I may just believe in my gut they're wrong, at some level, I need to make sure, and again, I, I, it's not always so easy to execute on this, but I think we need to open our minds up to understanding that other point of view, because I believe if we have different points of view, it's because we have different information. I don't think it's because my heart is better than your heart, and you're a bad person, and I'm a good person. No, I think we're all trying to do the right thing. So in the U.S., we have, we have CNN, which is a little more left-wing democratic and we have fox news which is certainly more right-wing and republican and i'll be honest i'm more of a cnn guy most of the time although i try not to watch the news much at all because it just drives me crazy but every once in a while i'll turn on fox news mm. to see what they're saying because i do think we need to you know you ask how do you know what what you believe is right 
I don't think we know, but I think we need to open our, our focus up to other ways of looking at things. And at a certain point, we have to just take action based on what we believe in and hope it's right, but be smart enough and have enough humility that when we realize maybe we're looking at something the wrong way, like I think I was when I thought I had to be neutral because I didn't want to lose a client. When we realize we're looking at something the wrong way, we need to be, I'll use that word courage again. We need to be courageous enough to pivot and say, hey, maybe I was wrong three weeks ago. And now I think maybe this is the right thing. That's okay. I definitely agree with you that expanding your perspective and trying to get under the surface of what's going on and trying to imagine why it is that people believe what they do is really important. Not even just try to imagine, to actually dig into it. You know, what are their personal circumstances? What is their family background? What is the context in which they find themselves? That creates that point of view and those beliefs and therefore those actions. Uh, and it's only when we do that that we can start to achieve that sense of empathy and connection with others and actually have conversations. As you said, you know, the left and right wing can't even have a conversation uh, because they're they're kind of like the opposite ends of the magnet. They just repel. And that's not going to get us anywhere because we all live on the same planet. And unless we have conversations and connection, we're not going to solve any of the issues that are affecting all of us and not just our own little patch of ground. So big picture stuff. I want to get into the topic of your latest book, Breakthrough Leadership Teams. And I think everything we've just spoke about feeds into that because a team is nothing but a collection of individuals with their own point of view. And sometimes that goes well and sometimes it doesn't. So what's your key insight from researching and writing this book? Yeah, a, a few things. And, and I guess I'll start off by telling you why I wrote it. You know, I've been like I said, coaching and consulting for more than 30 years, working exclusively with CEOs and their leadership teams to grow their businesses. And I woke up middle of the night, splitting headache, couldn't fall back to sleep, weird thoughts going through my head. And all of a sudden, a random thought came through my head. I always thought what I did is I worked with companies to help them grow. And a random thought came through my head that what I do is I help build great leadership teams. And I said, okay, well, that's not earth shattering, but I've never really thought of it that way. And that is what I do. And I got up that morning and I had in my head that I wanted to write my second book, but I couldn't figure out what I wanted to write it about yet. And so, of course, I had this, well, building great leadership teams. I read about a book a week. And I said, I don't remember ever reading a book exclusively about how you structure a leadership team and how you develop it and how you create culture on it, and how you uh, uh, assess talent. I, I don't remember reading that book, so I went on Amazon, of course, and I said, let me find a book, because I ought, to, I ought to be reading a book on that if that's what I do. And I couldn't find a book on it that was exclusively about that. And I said, okay, I guess I need to write the book that, that I think I need. What I found is, is when there's a problem on, uh, within a company, the root of the problem is always the leadership team. As the leadership team goes, so goes the rest of the company. And if you want to have a sustainably great company, you can't do that unless you've got a great leadership team. And when I, when I interviewed, not only did I use the knowledge I have from 30 years of doing this for the book, but I interviewed a number of, of CEOs. And I only talked to very successful CEOs that have built great teams and great companies. And I asked them what the biggest mistake they made in growing their team was. 
And it's interesting that all except one, and I don't remember what that one said, but all except one said the biggest mistake they made was they kept the wrong person on the team too long. And it's amazing. And that's the issue I deal with a lot of my clients where they keep C players on the team or low B players on the team way too long. And it just has such a cascading effect down throughout the leadership team. So anyway, I thought it was critical to write, I think, the book on how you uh, start with self-leadership and then how you structure the team, find the right people for the team, execute as a team and develop that team. So I'm curious about structuring the team. So tell me about what you believe is important with that piece. People don't typically think about the structure of their leadership team until they have a fire to put out. The CEO is also the head of sales and marketing until all of a sudden they're so busy they can't handle anymore and they have no sales pipeline. Or you have the head of administration is doing finance and HR and then at some point they have so many employees that the HR work isn't getting done and people start leaving and they say, oh my God, we need a head of HR. People don't think about the structure until they have a big problem. And what I do with my clients and what I talk about in the book is you need to project your business out. And I, I say you project your business out 12 quarters, quarter by quarter over three years. And you look at certainly your financial metrics, how your business is going to grow, but non-financials like the number of new clients you're bringing on or the number of orders you're shipping or the number of widgets you're producing. You project out over that time and you look at the functions in your organization and you could project out very clearly at what point do I have so many customers that I may need to break out operations and have a head of customer service. At what point do I need so many new customers that I need a vice president of sales? You know, at what point do I need to split sales and marketing into two different functions? And you can predict that over time. And now you could look, instead of saying, oh my God, things are falling through the cracks, we better hire a head of marketing, is you could know, should know, six months before you need somebody. Hey, if we're growing at this rate, this is what we're going to need six months from now. So let's start developing someone internally to fill that role, or let's start looking outside to fill that role. So you've got that role when you need it, as opposed to having that filled six months after you already have a problem. That makes total sense. So that's really useful on the structure piece. Tell me about how you go about building culture within the leadership team. What are the key principles from your point of view? Yeah, the, the key principles for me uh, are, you know, I call it the three V's. The first V are values. There are, and I'll tell you, back in my old consulting days when I worked with big Fortune 500 companies, they would have these plaques on the wall with their core values. But if you asked anybody what their values were, they didn't know unless they looked at that plaque on the wall. It was meaningless. With the work I do with my clients, those values are everything to them. Those values are non-negotiable behaviors that everyone 
has to live by. And we go through a painstaking process to figure out what those values are, to communicate those throughout the organization. And it's got to start with the leadership team. The leadership team has got to be uh, the model for living those values, modeling those values. So the first V is values. The second V is vision. The leadership team, they all need to be evangelists of that vision, whether it's a 10 to 15 year big, hairy, audacious goal, or it's more of a three year vision of where you're going to be and what differentiates you in the market. There needs to be a vivid, clear picture of where you could touch it and smell it and taste it of where we're taking this company. And the leadership team really needs to be evangelists of that vision. So first V is value. Second is vision. The third is the hardest. The third is vulnerability. And most people look at vulnerability as a negative thing. And especially, you know, in this COVID-19 environment where I live is in the U.S. is kind of right at the heart mm. of, of where COVID-19 hit the worst. Thankfully, uh, as we're uh, recording this, things are much better where I am now. But leaders thought they had to put their Superman cape on and be perfect for everybody else. We're going to get through this. And I know we're all working through Zoom and it's a different environment, but it's fine. And I'm not having a problem. And, and that's great. Yes, you've got to be strong for your people, but you've also got to be a real human being. You don't have to have that superhero cape on because if you're not vulnerable, showing some level of vulnerability with your people, letting them know that you're struggling a little bit too. Now, don't be curled up in the corner crying on a Zoom call. That's not very helpful. But if you're not being open and honest and, and being a real person with them, they're not going to be open and honest with you. And if they're not open and honest with you, you're not going to know the kind of problems they're having and what's going on in the organization. Pat Lencioni, who wrote a great book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, that if you have anybody listening to this, if you haven't read it, right after you read my book, go read his book. He talks about vulnerability-based trust, and, and that is the foundation principle on a team. So those three Bs, again, you know, first V is values, second is vision, and the third is all about vulnerability. Those are fabulous and absolute cornerstones for a solid culture, for sure. I want to come back to that question that you, you raised, you know, one of the biggest insights you asked of leaders over their time, what did they do? What was their biggest mistake? And that was keeping around the underperformers, not even underperformers, but the wrong people in the wrong seats. Why do you think it is that leaders keep those people around? It's an interesting question. And I have found a number of reasons. And, and I say a number of reasons, but I, what I really want to say is a number of excuses, because that's what they are. But one reason is they feel loyalty. They say, well, you know, I hired him five years ago and he's really been, you know, I feel loyal to him. He's been around for a while. And, you know, the reason I think that's an excuse is, hey, if you've got, let's say you've got a hundred people in your company, who are you more loyal to? This one person whose job you're saving or the 99 other people who you're hurting because you've got somebody in the organization that's toxic or if they're not toxic, they're at least holding you back especially if they're, you know, on a leadership team level, if you've got someone who's not a superstar at a leadership team level, 
that stuff cascades down through the organization. So the first reason is, is misplaced loyalty. Second reason is people are frankly afraid to have the difficult conversation. And the reason they use is they don't want to make the other person feel bad. And what I know is that it's not really about the other person. It's that you're afraid of how you're going to feel in this conversation. It's a hard conversation to have. So, you know, what we say in the U.S., you got to put your big boy pants on, right? You've got to, you know, grow up and, and have the difficult conversation. Because, by the way, one, one of the things I believe is if you've got someone on your team that, that's not the right fit, it doesn't mean they're a bad person. It just means they're a bad fit for your organization. By you keeping them around and protecting yourself from having that difficult conversation, you're hurting them because they've got the ability to go be an A player somewhere else. And you're keeping them around to be a B or a C player by you. I'm really surprised that really experienced CEOs struggle with that. You would think that by the time you get to CAO role, you've got that all sorted out, especially in the larger companies that you're talking about. They really don't. Difficult conversations are difficult. You know, that's why they're called yeah. difficult conversations. And they haven't all mastered that. You know, the other, the other excuse I hear is, well, um, no, they're not doing a good job, but if I let them go, I'm going to be short-staffed. Yeah, okay. And the challenge with that argument, you can almost see the logic in that, but the challenge with that argument is, you know, what we've all seen is that one, and I, there's a philosophy called one equals three, which was created by a guy named Kip Tyndall, who started a, a retailer in the U.S. called the Container Store. One equals three says one superstar equals the productivity of three mediocre performers. That's interesting. That is interesting. And it conflicts a little bit with the idea that you, you don't want a team of superstars. You want a superstar team. So meaning that, yeah, you can have a superstar performer, but they've got to be a team operator as well. Right. I think absolutely you need both. But really what you need, you do need a team of A players. And by the way, that's another excuse. Some of my clients say, well, I can't have all A players on my team. They're all going to want raises. They're all going to want promotions. And I'm astonished by that, that people would say, we need B and C players. We can't have all A players. And I say, you know what? You're going to have to trust me on this. If you had all A players on your team, trust me, you will be growing so fast and so profitably that you will be able to give them all raises and promotions. Get them to be A players. And especially at a leadership team level, if you've got even a B player at a leadership team level, a players do not like working for B players. B players don't typically hire A players. So if you have anything but A players, or at least B players with high potential to become A players, if you have anything but those folks on your leadership team, you're hurting your company. And yes, you don't just want a team of superstars. You need people that fit. You need people where if you leverage all of their strengths together, you've got a superstar team. But you really can't afford to have B and C players on the leadership team. Yeah, that makes sense. You, you want everybody to rise to the level of the top performers, not just, you know, sink to the bottom, <laughs> the bottom performance. What are three signs that you actually have an A-star performing team? Like if you were to evaluate a team for their high performance, what would be some indicators you would see? Well, 
I'm going to tell you kind of the micro view and the macro view and the micro view I actually have. And if anybody wants to go to breakthroughleadershipteam.com, there's an assessment of six different key areas that help you understand where you are on this breakthrough leadership team journey. That's the micro level. And I'm not going to take you through that because we'll, we'll be here a long time if I took you through all those details, but the macro level is really about, I believe three, and you said three things, and I think it is about three things, not just because you asked the question that way. <laughs> one is, you know you've got a great leadership team, a breakthrough leadership team. Number one, if you have consistent top and bottom line growth, if you think you have a breakthrough leadership team and you're not growing or you're not growing profitably, think again, something's wrong. You don't have a breakthrough leadership team. So number one, it's top and bottom line growth. Number two is you are creating a growing, fulfilling environment for your employees. It's not just about money. My whole purpose for my business is not really about helping companies grow. It's about impacting as many people as I can so they feel fulfilled by what they do for a living. I want to make the word retirement a dirty word. I want everyone to love what they do. So number one, it's top and bottom line growth. Number two is, does everybody love what they do in your company? You're creating a growing, fulfilling environment. And then number three, are you adding real value to society? Now value to society could mean, certainly means value to your employees. It certainly, I hope means value to your customers. And hopefully it goes beyond that. Hopefully you're doing something that you believe in to go back to talking about leadership earlier and, and, and doing something, being courageous enough to take action on what you believe in. Hopefully as a company and doing something you believe on, it's got a bigger positive impact on society. Yeah, that's great. I think those are really wonderful criteria um, from the pragmatic through to the ethical and purposeful ones. So you've been dispensing advice for 30 plus years. What is a great piece of advice that you've been given? That's a great question. I've been given so much great advice over the years. One piece of advice is that every once in a while, you've got to do something that scares you. I'm 55. I got that piece of advice when I was 50 years old. And the first thing I did with that advice is I said, ever since I'm younger, I've been kind of the funny guy around the table. And people say, oh, you should be a stand-up comic. And I knew they said that not, you know, just telling me I was funny. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a course in stand-up comedy and I'm going to get up on stage in Manhattan in a club and do a 10-minute comedy act. Scared the hell out of me. That would scare the hell out of me too. <laughs> scared the hell out of me. And I did it and it was so much fun. I wasn't quitting my day job. I was, I was okay at it. I wasn't great. <laughs> but it was so much fun. And, you know, last year, you know, I did 30 days of training on something called neuro-linguistic programming in Whistler, British Columbia, you know, back in your old, old country, but, but out on the West Coast. And, you know, to me, that advice of just finding something that's going to get you out of your comfort zone and scare you, I think that's how we grow. Yeah, nice. Um, so I hope you're not saying that British Columbia was a scary place to go. <laughs> no, oh, it's beautiful. Whistler is gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is beautiful over there. And I look forward to being able to travel once more to see it. Um, where can people get a hold of you and where can they find your books? 
well, they can find my book on uh, Amazon on uh, the if if you like an ebook or or a physical book or if you love the sound of my voice or my New Jersey accent, you can get the audible uh, the audible version. My website is Mike hyphen or dash. I don't know what what's the, I don't know the best way in Australia to say it. It's a, if it's a hyphen or a dash. They both work. Both work. <laughs> Mike dash Goldman dot com. Uh, you could also go to Breakthrough Leadership Team. Dot com and that's where you could order the book through Amazon through there but but also there are a number of tools from my book that you can download there as well as a breakthrough leadership team assessment which is a free assessment that will assess where you and your leadership team are on this journey to create a breakthrough leadership team oh fantastic well good on you for doing a number of scary things including writing two books and showing up on podcasts and being a stand-up comic Mike, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your insight and wisdom all the way from the other side of the world. Zoe, thank you so much. I love what Mike and I talked about uh, when it comes to perspective and be no longer sitting on your laurels when it comes to speaking your truth and speaking up. And I love his expression or his conviction that neutrality is dead. I think he's right. We need courage to express our convictions, not in the I'm right and you're wrong kind of way, but to speak up on things that we believe are harmful to others, that we believe are not in service to more people. And I think to be open always to other people's perspective is one of the critical takeaways. And I think to question always our own beliefs and to rinse it through an evaluation of is this a good principle? Uh, would this be of service to others, not just to me? And if so, do I have the courage to step up and speak up about it? How can I be more of service? And if people come on board with your similar convictions, fabulous. And if they don't, that's okay too. But I think creating a more understanding and compassionate world is what we all must aspire to do and must take steps to do as leaders. So, I think that was really well worthwhile conversation to have. And it's definitely an encouragement that we all need to take on board. If you enjoyed this conversation or you have something to add, I'd love to hear from you. Email me, zoe at intercompass.com.au or post on the link in the show notes that takes you to the podcast page and drop a question or a comment or a resource there. It'd be great to share the conversation and get it going because we don't just operate in our own little bubbles. We are in one giant bubble on planet Earth, and I'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, live well, lead well.